The first of our two readings tonight is so Isaiah chapter 66, starting at verse 14. When you see this, your heart will rejoice, and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire, and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people, and many will be those slain by the Lord. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following, the one, who is, uh, following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pigs, rats, and other unclean things, they will meet their end together with the one they follow, declares the Lord. And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survived to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that may not have heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations." And they will bring my, sorry, they will bring all your people, they will bring all your people from, uh, from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and wagons and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind." His second reading is Mark chapter 9, from verses 42 onwards. So Mark chapter 9, from verse 42. If anyone causes these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands going to hell. Well, the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. This is God's word. Well, good evening, everyone. Let me add my welcome. If we've not met, my name's James. I'm on the staff team here. And if you keep your Bibles open at Mark chapter 9, let's pray together as we come to God's word.
Father, thank you that every single word that you have given us is for our good. Father, we praise you that as we come this evening, we get to hear your voice speaking to us. And so we pray that you would open our eyes that we might see wonderful things in your word. Whether we're hearing these things for the first time or heard them many, many times, please would you help us tonight by your spirit to understand what your word has to say to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Danger. Area closed. People have fallen to their death from this point. Those are the words that are written on a warning sign on the cliffs in San Francisco, in Land's End. Uh, a fence stretches its way along the cliffs, a 200-foot drop on the other side. Three friends are out on a hike together, uh, and they approach the warning sign, and they see it there, and they ignore it. They see the graffiti painted over it, and they think, well, if I get the other side, then I can get a better picture to take, to put on social media. And so they climb over the fence. If you were there, what would you say to them? What would you say to people who've seen the warning and ignored it? They take a step closer. What would you say? Would you be shouting? Would you be screaming? What would you say as they walk towards the edge of that cliff? One takes a step too far, falls 200 feet, and is dead before they arrive at the hospital. A tragedy. Heartbreaking. Absolutely devastating. The warning sign was there, and it was ignored. In these verses that we've just read from Mark chapter 9, Jesus has a warning to give us. A warning designed to stop a devastating, heartbreaking, eternal tragedy. Because hell is real, do not take sin lightly. Because hell is real, do not take sin lightly. That's the words that Jesus has to say to us this evening from Mark chapter 9. And the truth is that many of us are tempted to take sin lightly, to treat it as if it's something that we can play with, that we can just assume doesn't really matter that much. To think we can control it, to think we can just leave it standing in us. But my purpose this evening is to persuade you not to ignore the warning sign, not to climb over the fence and take a step towards the edge and to plunge to our eternal death. Because hell is real, do not take sin lightly. If you have your Bibles, please look down with me at Mark chapter 9. Because we're in a section of of Mark's gospel where Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's just been revealed as the the promised eternal saviour king. He's the Christ. That's who he's just been revealed as. But his road to the crown of eternal glory first comes through the cross. He's going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. He's going to die before rising and returning and reigning in glory. Cross first, then crown. And in this section of the gospel, between his second prediction of his death in chapter 9, verse 31, and his third prediction in chapter 10, verse 33, Jesus is explaining what it will mean for his followers to take up their cross and follow him. What it will mean to deny themselves, take up their cross, 
and follow him? What's it going to look like day to day, practically? And this evening, there are three warnings that Jesus gives, three warnings all related to sin and all related to the seriousness of what happens if we ignore it. So we're going to see three warnings. The first, sin in relation to fellow Christians. Don't cause others to sin. Secondly, sin in relation to our own selves. Don't tolerate your own sin. Thirdly, sin in relation to the world outside us. Don't be like the world in sin. Under each, warn- under each one of these warnings, there's the terrible end. If you don't listen, that's the path that leads to hell, says Jesus. Because hell is real, it is a terrible mistake to take sin lightly. And so that warning is as urgent for us tonight as it was for Jesus' followers when they first heard it. And so we need God's help as we come to hear his words. Firstly, look down with me at chapter 9, verse 42, and the first of the warnings. Look what Jesus says. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung round their neck and they were thrown into the sea. So the first warning that Jesus gives is about sin in relation to other Christians. And Jesus warns us against causing other Christian believers to stumble in sin. He says, don't be the foot that is stuck out and trips up another Christian. The foot that's stuck out and trips up another Christian into sin. Such is Jesus' protective concern for his followers, his little ones. That's how they're described in verse 42. His little ones, those who believe in him, the vulnerable, the weak, the helpless. Such is Jesus' concern for them that he gives a grave warning. He says, better to be dragged helplessly down by a ton brick into the ocean. Better to be dragged down into the swirling chaos and the deep darkness of the sea and drown. Better to do that than to cause one of his little ones to stumble. I don't know if you've ever seen a a video of a, a mother bear with her cubs And little cubs look innocent. They look helpless. They look weak as they stand there around. And a predator sees them and thinks, oh, there's easy prey. And the the predator moves towards the little cubs and gets ready to pounce. And then suddenly, from nowhere, the mother bear is there. And she is there to defend them. She will stop the predators no matter what. The mother bear cares so much for her cubs. She will not let one of them, not even the little helpless ones, the weak ones, Have anything happened to them? Such is Jesus' protective concern for his followers. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung round their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Or we could put it positively. Jesus wants us to be a church where we care for one another, such that we always want to be building each other up, not tripping each other up. He doesn't want us to be causing others to stumble into sin. He wants us to be building each other up. But why is it so serious? I mean, why is Jesus so serious? Why such a stark warning? Why all this talk about millstones being hung around our necks? Why that sort of talk? Well, I've just said that Jesus has been revealed as the Messiah, the Christ, the promised saviour king. And he has come down to earth on a mission A mission which is going to end in the cross and his resurrection. A mission to destroy sin and to rescue his people from it. 
He came to bring forgiveness from the penalty of sin. He came to bring freedom from the power of sin. He came one day to banish sin forever. Jesus' mission was all about rescuing his people from sin. And so how wicked to to push one of Jesus' followers back into the sin from which he has pulled them out. I don't know if you've, uh, you've ever seen pictures of the aftermath of an oil spill. You see thousands of gallons of this oil pouring into the sea. And it causes contamination everywhere. And you see all the, the wildlife that's caught up in the black, disgusting, filthy oil that's spreading everywhere. It's hard on the, the ducks and the, the little creatures who get caught up in this black, oily, disgusting filth. It stains their feathers and it causes them slowly to shut down and to starve and to die. And when the clear-up operation happens, people have to take these animals and they, they take them and carefully, lovingly start taking off all the oil. And they clean them up and they get rid of all the filth and they, they release them back. And we're like that, stained black by our sin. The filth of it is all over us. It's ruining us. And Jesus comes down on a mission to take us and lovingly pull us out of that filth. Take off all the, the sin and to get rid of it forever. He wants us to be broken free of its power. He wants to clean us up and restore us to life. So how wicked it is to to take one of these people who Jesus has pulled out of sin and to push them back in. To push them back into the filth of sin that he has come to rescue them from. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung round their neck and they were thrown into the sea. To cause another Christian to stumble is to laugh in Jesus' mission. It's to laugh at it and say, I don't want anything to do with that, Jesus. I want to push that person back into the filth of sin, that sin that you came to get rid of. Don't think for a second that Jesus is going to be indifferent about that. He cares so much for the people that he's come to rescue He does not want sin to be taken lightly. Build up God's people, don't trip them up, says Jesus. So the question is, how might we then cause other Christians to stumble? Let me give you a few different ways. Sometimes it happens through blatant temptation. Think of the the boyfriend who entices his girlfriend to sleep with him. Think of the group of mates who entice one another with juicy pieces of gossip. Think of the housemates who know precisely what buttons to press in their housemate to provoke them to anger, to provoke them to grumbling. Sometimes it happens through blatant temptation. But sometimes it can be far more subtle than that. Sometimes it can happen just through thoughtless self-absorption. We live in a culture that very much focuses on me and what I want. And when that attitude gets into the church, we can very quickly stop thinking about the impact our actions have on one another we can very quickly stop thinking about other people. The impact of our actions can be for good to build up or for evil to trip up. And Jesus wants us to be a church that doesn't simply ask the question, what's good for me? But also, how is this going to affect one another? Is it going to cause others to stumble or is it going to build them up? Before you watch a film, organise a night out, post something on social media, decide what to wear, Jesus wants us to consider what impact our actions will have on other Christians. 
Will they build up or will they trip up? And notice that Jesus wants us to watch out for the weakest, the most vulnerable, the little ones. Have you ever noticed how how a family goes to all sorts of lengths to make sure that their little baby is safe? At church on Sunday mornings, I have the role of uh, overseeing the children's work, and we have to do all sorts of crazy, impractical things to make sure that the kids are kept safe. You know, there's a, a baby gate at the back by the stairs, and it's an absolute nightmare to put on. You go over there and you're sort of scraping your arms on the sides and trying to twist this thing on and pushing it into the right place to try and get this baby gate to go on just so that a baby doesn't go up the stairs. It's so inconvenient to me. And yet it keeps the kids safe. We look out for the weakest. We look out for the most vulnerable. We look out for the little ones. And Jesus wants us to be the sort of church that does that. doesn't cause others to stumble into sin. Watching that film, going to that place, posting that photo, wearing those clothes might be okay for us, but we have to ask ourselves the question, what impact will it have on others? Is that going to build others up? Is it going to trip them up? What about the weaker Christian? What about the new Christian? What about the struggling Christian? What impact will my actions have on them? Jesus wants us to be a church that cares about others other Christians. And he says, don't cause any of those little ones to stumble. So that's the first point, sin in relation to other Christians. The second point is warning number two, don't tolerate your own sin. Look down with me at verses 43 through to 49. Jesus says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the worms that eat them do not die. And the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Having thought about the impact that our actions have on other Christians, Jesus now turns the attention to ourselves and the sin that's within us. And he warns us, don't tolerate your own sin. Do you see how radical, how decisive the action Jesus is calling for is? Cut it off. Pluck it out. Cut it off. That's what Jesus says about sin in our own lives. Get rid of it. Act radically, decisively. Kill our own sin. And it applies to every area of our lives. The things we do with our hands, the the places that we go with our feet, the things we see and desire with our eyes. Every area of life, wherever we see sin, Jesus says, cut it off. Pluck it out. Cut it off. Of course, the language is metaphorical. So Christians in history have attempted to take this literally by literally cutting off their limbs. But it doesn't really work. The problem is at least two reasons. One is that we'll end up with nothing very quickly because we're so sinful. The second reason is, back in Mark chapter 9, excuse me, Mark chapter 7, Jesus has said that sin comes from our hearts. Sinful behavior comes from out of our hearts. Plucking out an eye won't stop lustful hearts. 
the language is a metaphor, but it doesn't make it any less radical. Cut it off, pluck it out. The very purpose of the metaphor is to show us how seriously we should take our sin. Imagine a a doctor who has got a patient who's just arrived who has a gangrenous arm. It's spreading and spreading and spreading. What does the doctor do? Cuts it off. Stops it before it spreads and destroys everything. And Jesus says the same about our sin. Wherever we see it in our lives, cut it off, pluck it out, get rid of it. Wherever we see our our hearts going off after sin, Jesus says, cut it off, get rid of it. If it's a heart attitude, find the, the gospel message that will take root in that sin and get rid of it. That will destroy it completely. Wherever we choose to place ourselves in the way of temptation, Jesus says, don't go there. Don't go there. Flee from it. Take radical, decisive action. But what's at stake? What is at stake? Well, look, the Bible gives a whole number of motives that will spur us on to godly living, to putting to death our sin. But do you see in these verses that Jesus says that heaven and hell is at stake? Look down again at the verses and see the the language that Jesus uses. He talks about entering life in verse 43. He talks about entering life again in verse 45. He talks about entering the kingdom of heaven, excuse me, the kingdom of God in verse 47. But he also talks about hell. Heaven and hell, life and death. That's what's at stake in our attitude towards sin. He said earlier that Jesus' mission was to come down and to rescue and restore and to clean people from sin, to remove it and banish it and bring them forever into his presence in heaven. That was Jesus' mission. He's the only saviour who can rescue from the penalty of sin, the only one who can bring us into eternal life. Jesus and sin are enemies, and so you can't love both. If you love Jesus as your saviour, he's the one who can bring you into life, but you can't love sin as well. It's impossible to love Jesus without hating sin. And so if our attitude in our hearts towards sin is to love it, to hold on to it, well then ultimately that's a rejection of Jesus and a rejection of the saviour who's the only one who can bring us into life. And so that's the path that leads to hell. To choose to love our sin and to reject Jesus is the path that leads to hell. Let's take a few moments to look down and see how Jesus describes what hell is like. The word that he uses is a word called Gehenna, which means the valley of Hinnom. When you see the word hell, that's the word that it is. Just outside of Jerusalem, if you were there, you could go southwest and you'd end up at the valley of Hinnom. Now, back in Old Testament times, this was a valley where much wickedness had taken place. It's where wicked kings had sacrificed children to pagan gods. It was a place of utter wickedness. And so God had pronounced a curse on the people and a curse on the valley. And under King Josiah, that valley of Hinnom had been turned into the city's garbage disposal place. An incinerator, a fire burnt there 24-7, destroying all the filth and all the rubbish from the city. 
It was a place of God's curse and it was a place where fire consumed everything. And it's the word that Jesus chooses to use 11 times in the Gospels as a graphic way of describing what life, not in heaven but in hell, will be like. Under God's curse, fire burning up wickedness. Look down at the graphic descriptions again that Jesus uses in verses 44 and verse 48. They are terrifying. The end of verse 44. Hell is the place where the fire never goes out. Verse 48. Hell is the place where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. That final quotation from verse 48 is taken from Isaiah 66, which we read earlier. In Isaiah, the the saviour has come. God has come as saviour and he has come to rescue his people and to offer them eternal life in a new heavens and a new earth. But not all choose to accept that. And so in that final scene in Isaiah that we read earlier, you see God's people from all nations coming and gathering in the new heavens and the new earth, those who've turned to God as saviour. But those rebels who continue to reject him, those rebels who continue to ignore the saviour and to keep living in rebellion, they're the ones who go to the place where Isaiah says, the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Heaven and hell are at stake. Verse 49 is a, a challenging verse to understand. Everyone will be salted with fire. But I think what it's saying is, the finality of what's going to happen. In the book of Judges, after a city is destroyed, salt is spread throughout the city as a sign to say that you'll never rebuild the city again. The city's done with. You throw salt all over it and say it's, it's done. And so everyone in hell will be salted with fire. Hell is forever. There is no hint of a, a temporary place of refining as those who wrongly teach of purgatory believe. There is no hint of an end point as those who wrongly teach annihilationism believe. Hell is forever. Hell is for punishment. There's no enjoyment, no friendship, no laughter. Those in hell endure the curse of God. Hell is for sinners. It's for people who've turned against God and lived in wickedness. There is no hint that in the end God will forgive everyone as those who wrongly teach universalism believe. It is terrible. And so as we let those words sink in, they're Jesus' words. They're Jesus' words explaining what will happen to those people who love sin and so cannot love the saviour who came to rescue people from sin. They are stark words. And it's why our attitude towards sin in our own lives, indeed sin in every area of life, is so vital. We have the warnings. Jesus uses the graphic warnings so that we might not go to hell. He uses those words so that we would turn, so that we'd see the warning sign, not ignore it, not jump over the fence. That's why the words are there. Our saviour Jesus can forgive us, can rescue us, can restore us, can cleanse us, can forgive us. He is the one who can bring us into life, into his kingdom. That's what his mission was to do to come down to earth as the saviour king. 
And so turn and trust Christ. Flee from sin. Turn your back on sin. Run away from sin. Do everything you can to get rid of sin and run to Christ as Savior. Run to him. He is the one who can bring you into eternal life. Live consistently with that trust in Christ by putting to death sin, cutting it off, plucking it out, doing whatever we can to get rid of it. Take whatever radical, decisive action is necessary to kill sin. Which leaves us with a question. As Christians, as we look at our own lives, does our attitude to our sin look to us like we are cutting it off, like we're plucking it out? Or does it look to us like we're playing with it, like we're indifferent to it, like we're just peacefully coexisting with it? It's a question for us to think about so that we might turn to Christ, trust Christ and put to death all of the sin that we find in our lives. That's the second warning sign that Jesus has about sin in ourselves. There's a third and briefly look down with me at verse 50. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. The final warning that Jesus gives is sin in relation to the world around us. And he says, be salty. That is, to summarize, a life of fighting sin, of putting it to death, cutting it off, plucking it out, will make us different to the world around us. We'll taste different, have a different flavor. We'll be salty. And if we're not, how can you make it salty again, says Jesus? You can't fight sin and remain the same as the world around you. Christians are to look, to speak, to hope, to love, to react differently to everything compared to the world around us because we follow Jesus and we put to death sin. Imagine a football player who switches teams in the summer. As he switches teams, everything has to change. He has a new manager. They have a new playing style. They have a new direction that they're going. Everything has to change. They can't be the same. If they played the same, it'd just be hopeless. Imagine an employee, she switches jobs, and as she moves to the new office, she has a new manager, a new set of goals, a new direction to take. It would be hopeless if she still worked the same way as she used to work for her old boss. And Christians have made a switch. We've bowed the knee to King Jesus. He's taken us out of the world. And now we follow him. It's hopeless if we live the same, says Jesus. Salt that loses its saltiness. How can you make it salty again? It's hopeless. Jesus says this because he's concerned that his disciples are becoming too much like the world around him. And so he says this warning. We're to be different to the world that's around us. He says, be at peace with each other. Just previously, last week, if you were with us, the disciples are arguing, being divisive, arguing who's the greatest. They're being indifferent, intolerant to other people who are, are Christians following Jesus. And they're just saying, you can't be one of us. Being divisive, being intolerant. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 be at peace. Be at peace with one another. Be different to the world around you. As you follow Jesus, Christians are to be different. Some of us who were at the men's breakfast recently would have heard an interview with a man who became a Christian. He'd been brought up in a Christian home with Christian parents, but had turned his back on following Jesus. 
And he had embraced a, a lifestyle that was much like the world around him. He said his motto was work hard, play hard. During the week, he would work hard trying to accumulate as much money as he possibly could. And then at the weekends, it was all about going out. It was all about acquiring property. It was all about moving in with his girlfriend. It was all about getting what he could and enjoying himself. That's what he said his life was like. But one day, this man, he, he went along to a, a course which explained the Christian faith. And amazingly, just in an, in an instant, he became a Christian. And the way he described it was, in, in 10 seconds, my whole life changed. He said he, he never slept with his girlfriend again. He, he left his job, which was so focused on profit for himself, and instead wanted to do something to serve others. And today, he is taking the gospel of Jesus out to tell the nations the good news. Now, as a follower of Christ, his life had to be different, and he knew that. That's the sort of difference it makes if you're a follower of Jesus. I wonder, has following Jesus made that difference for you? Can you see the way that your life is now different as you follow Jesus Christ? Jesus tells us we ought to be salty Christians, different from the world around us. If we're not, it's hopeless. So they're the three warnings that Jesus gives all about sin, sin in relation to other Christians, sin in relation to ourselves, sin in relation to the world around us. The warning sign is there so that we might not climb over the fence, get to the cliff face and fall down. These words are strong words, but they're Jesus' words and he's given them to us so that we might know him and live for him. So as we close, let me ask three questions three questions of us that we can reflect on. The first is this, where are you tempted to take sin lightly? Where are you tempted to take sin lightly? Is it in relation to other Christians? Is it in relation to yourself? Is it in relation to the world? Where are you tempted to take sin lightly? Where do these warnings bite for you? Question number two, do you realize how serious sin is? Do you realize how serious sin is? Jesus says that an attitude that loves sin is an attitude that leads us to hell. It's serious. Question number three. Do you realize what sort of savior Jesus is? The sort of saviour who would come down, leave the glory of heaven, come down to earth to die on a cross, to pull people out of the mess and filth of sin, to rescue, to restore, to forgive. Do you realise what sort of saviour he is? And will you turn to him? Will you trust him? And then will you live for him? Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you that you give us warnings. You give us warnings so that none of us, if we trust in Christ, need end up in hell. So we pray this evening that you would turn each one of us to trust the Lord Jesus. Trust him as our saviour who can rescue us. And we pray that each one of us would be determined to go and live a life that puts to death sin, cuts it off, plucks it out, that we might live for you and for your glory. 
Thank you that that is the path that leads to life, that leads to your kingdom. And we pray that you would take us there as we follow Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.